0: Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Sorry about that. I'd like to begin this morning with a pop quiz. I'm going to make a series of statements, and in your head, you're going to answer true or false. Here we go Bulls get angry when they see red. James Cagney said, You dirty rat. Camels can go longer without water than any other animal. Captain Kirk said, beam me up Scotty. The Great Wall of China can be seen from the moon. And finally Sherlock Holmes said, elementary, my dear Watson. All of those statements are false according to the Bureau of misinformation. I even looked up a couple just to make sure. For instance, it is the Australian kangaroo rat that can go the longest without water. And it wasn't beam me up Scotty, it was beam me up Mr. Scott. My point is, we can be sincerely believe something and still be sincerely wrong. And that is where all those who have followed Adonijah are going to find themselves in our account today. Welcome back to First Kings, we pick up our account in verse 38. If you recall from last week, Adonijah sits eating with his supporters, seemingly in possession of his father's empire. Unfortunately for him, a less public power play has also occurred. Those he soon expects to eliminate have moved into action. Led by the seasoned prophet Nathan, this group will install Solomon as co-regent with his declining father. Look at verse 38 with me. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. And Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise we begin the story with them blowing trumpets and screaming long live King Solomon according to ancient tradition the death of a ruler is greeted with the following words the king is dead long live the king and once again this seems like a contradiction if the king is dead then what use is there in wishing him a long life but the point is is that the kingdom will endure Even though one king has died, another king is going to rise and take his place. The kingship will survive, and therefore the people hope for the continuity of the monarchy when they say the king is dead, long live the king. And when these servants prayed that Solomon's kingdom would surpass David's, they were not insulting David, but honoring God's promise to give David a royal dynasty. It says that the earth shook at the noise of this. This did not go unnoticed by Adonijah and his personal little Mardi Gras. Verse 41, please. Now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard this as they finished eating. When Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, Why is the city making such an uproar? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, son of Abiathar, the priest, came. Then Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a valiant man, and you bring good news. But Jonathan replied to Adonijah, On the contrary, Our lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has also sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, they have mounted him on the king's mule. Furthermore, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king in Gihon, and they have come up from their rejoicing, so that the city is going wild. That is the noise which you have heard. Besides, Solomon is even taking his seat on the throne of the kingdom. Moreover, the king's servants came to bless our lord king David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. The king also has said this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted one to sit on my throne today while my own eyes see it. Events have moved so rapidly that Adonijah and his party was caught unaware that their gathering has now been rendered obsolete. In Rogel, where Adonijah's party was gathered, was less than a mile from the valley down there in Gihon. The sound of the trumpet was the first clue picked up by the old warrior, Joab. In all the clamor, Joab's military-trained ears heard the sound of the trumpet. And he knew that the sound of that, he recognized in that, that something big was going on. At this point in the narrative, there is a dramatic scene change. And the Bible takes us back to the feast that Adonijah was hosting right outside of Jerusalem. The proper literary term for this kind of situation is dramatic irony. Dramatic irony occurs whenever a reader knows something that a character in the story does not know. In this case, Joab heard the sound of a trumpet followed by the noise of the crowd. He may not have known what it meant, but we do. It was the sound of Solomon's triumph and therefore the trumpet blast of Adonijah's downfall. We are giving the impression that until the disturbing sound was heard from the north, Adonijah and those who had gathered with him were partying and completely unaware of the drama that had been unfolding in the city. It did not even cross their minds that there would be any challenge to Adonijah's presumptuous self-confidence. However, His arrogance is about to become his undoing. Now, Abathar's son Jonathan arrives with news. But we sense even now that Adonijah is still upbeat. He does not yet share Joab's anxious agitation. He probably thought that the news of his own enthronement at Enrogel may have already reached the city and caused a joyous uproar for him. That is how blind sin is can render us. Vanity is capable of that kind of delusion. He was persuaded that Jonathan must be the bearer of good news. Good news, that is, for Adonijah. In the Hebrew, verses 46, 47, and 48, each begin with the phrase, and also. We can almost imagine Jonathan taking a deep breath and saying, and also, and also. And also, the irony is, is that Jonathan's message was undeniably good news, as in the news of something very good indeed. But Adonijah is not going to think so. In this, Jonathan's message was very much like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the verb here translated bring news is a source of our English word evangelize, meaning to preach the gospel. The gospel that we proclaim is good news. It is news of something tremendously good. But that does not mean that it is good news for those who do not want Jesus to be their king. Poor Adonijah. Everything had been going so well for him, just as he planned. People had even started calling him king. But at the very moment of his apparent triumph... One trumpet blast is all it's going to take to shatter his dreams. Look at verse 49. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and got up, and each went on his way. So Jonathan has made it very clear now that Solomon at that very moment was the king of Israel. Adonijah and his fellow conspirators and his guests knew what that meant. They were all now under great suspicion. So at this juncture, all of the guests rose up and then fled to the city for safety. The noise from that city had brought their party to an end. Everyone stopped eating. They sensed that something momentous had happened. They did not yet understand what it was, but the uproar that reached their ears signaled the collapse of the misguided expectations of those who were with Adonijah. The party was over in every single sense. When Adonijah's dinner guests heard what had happened, it was every man for himself. The tide had now turned, and they feared that they were dead men. It's easy to imagine them sneaking towards the exits quietly and then making a run for it like rats fleeing a sinking ship. The party was now over. At once they recognized that what had been going on at Enragel had all been a big mistake. If, as the evidence suggests, they had thought that the whole Adonijah thing was legitimate... The news that Solomon was the true king was shattering news indeed. They suddenly realized they had all been completely wrong. And please realize, it is easy to be sincere and still be wrong. The seriousness of being wrong about the big questions in life is not alleviated by honestly believing that we are right. Case in point. If I sincerely believe that I am healthy while I am dying of cancer, my sincerity will not save me. If I honestly trust a con man selling a piece of junk car, my trust is misplaced no matter how deeply I may feel it. Actually, the sincerity can make the realization that I was wrong even more devastating as that car breaks down on the way home. So upon hearing that Solomon had been anointed king, everyone who had once dined with Adonijah, now all desert him. By the way, that's the way it always is. When people bond around a rebellion, their connection doesn't last very long. Therefore, may the Lord always allow us to be bonded not around a cause, organization, or even a doctrinal persuasion, but simply around the person of Christ. But as I pondered this section, one other story came to my mind, and it was the story of Esther. In many ways, Adonijah's Adonijah's situation reminds me of that of Haman. Think about it. Everything seems to be going swimmingly for both men, and then almost immediately it all falls apart. If you know the story, Haman is trying to climb the political ladder, and now he has almost everyone bowing down before him. At one point, he even says to his wife and his friends these following words. Calling together his, wife, his friends and his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. Haman then says... But all this gives me no satisfaction, as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the gate. So he is furious about everyone bowing down to him except that one person. So let's stop for a minute and look at this. What do we learn from that about pride? Like in the case of Adonijah, pride, according to the Bible, is simply just concentration on self. The sinister thing about pride, however, is that it is the one sin that hides itself. Pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It has the ability to kill you without you having any ability to tell that it's even happening. It's odorless. And by definition, the more proud you are and therefore the more it has you in its clutches, the less proud you think you are. Pride hides itself. For instance, people know when they're committing adultery, right? They never say, hey, wait a minute, you're not my beautiful wife, like that talking head song. No, you know when you're committing adultery. You also know when you're embezzling somebody. You don't say, Wait a minute, how did that $300,000 get into my bank account? You mean I don't make that much every year? No, you know when you're lustful, and you know when you're embezzling. But very often, we don't know when we're proud. Virtually nobody ever comes up and says, I'm proud. I have a real problem with pride. I've listened to all kinds of sins confessed to me over the last 17 years, But I don't think no one has ever came to me one time and told me about that one. You say, all right, you've defined pride rather broadly. I see your point. So how bad is it? It's very bad. The Bible says, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of just killing Mordecai Instead, Haman looked for a way to kill all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. He wasn't satisfied with just killing Mordecai, Mordecai, and therefore making him bow in a sense. No, he now wants to destroy the entire community. So he goes to King Xerxes and he says, he tells him about a group of people who don't obey the king's laws. He says... If you'll just give me permission to slaughter them and take their wealth, and by the way, your majesty, lots of that loot will then go into your treasury. Because we know that the king had depleted his treasury with a disastrous campaign in Greece, so he really needed the money. So the king gives him his signet ring and says, go ahead. He doesn't even find out who the group of people are. So Haman makes a law, and since it was the law of the Medes and the Persians, it was irrevocable. Haman designated a day, and on that day, the neighbors of the Jews anywhere in the Persian Empire were able to destroy the Jews and take their wealth as plunder. Thousands of people were going to die. This is Esther 5.13. Yet all this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a wooden gallows built 50 cubits high, and ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, and then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the wooden gallows made. Now, right after this, in a delicious twist of irony, God has Haman honor Mordecai by leading him around the city on a horse. Now listen to Esther 6.12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, while Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. And Haman informed his wife and all of his friends of everything that had happened to him. Now he's probably looking to his wife and his friends for some emotional support. But instead, listen to what they say. Then his wise men and his wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not prevail over him, but he will certainly prevail over you. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly brought Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now, is it only me? Or does that not sound like a lot of what is going on here in 1 Kings chapter 1? Just the day before, His wife and his friends were urging him on. Yeah, Haman, we're with you. Down with Mordecai. Build the gallows high. But now, just like those at Adonijah's party, their support has vanished. I can't go into the whole story, but God used Esther to come before the king at a dinner she had given. Then the king told her he would give her anything up to half of his kingdom. Now, he really didn't mean that. Esther knew that was just the kind of thing that the king said when he was in a good mood, but it wasn't to be taken literally. It was more or less like the king saying, "Hey, sugar bear, I'm in a great mood tonight. I'm gonna let you hold the remote to the TV." So at this point, she reveals the evil plot of Haman. And sure enough, he, Mordecai is hanged on the very—I'm gal- sorry—Haman is hanged on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. In both those cases, Adonijah and Haman, the party was over just that quickly. I thought that was fascinating. But consider the inevitability of all this. Solomon was the rightful king, according to God's promise. And sooner or later, those who had put themselves under another king would have to face the reality that Solomon was the king. What we have seen is a shadow of things to come. What do I mean? If Jesus Christ is Lord, then sooner or later, every human being will bow before God's King. That's even more inevitable. And you know what? Such will be the ending of everyone who spurns the grace of God. We may be having big fun for a while. And it may seem like The party is never going to end. But one day, every one of us is going to have to stand and give an account of our lives before God. And just like in our account this morning, all your so-called friends are not going to be there when your party comes to an end. Because believe me, sooner or later, the party will be over. That means each of us have a choice to make this morning. Do I still claim the right to rule my own life? Or am I ready to enthrone Jesus as my king? First Kings 1 ends with Adonijah struggling to make his choice. But sooner or later, what happened to Adonijah will happen to anyone who tries to sit on the throne of his or her own universe. We may become popular for a while, especially if we throw parties like Adonijah. Remember the prodigal son? It says he took his inheritance and he partied it all away until all the money was gone. And guess what? As soon as his money was gone, so was his so-called friends. But like the prodigal and like Adonijah, we may even find people who will call us king or at least treat us like one. But eventually, our pleasures are going to turn sour and we're going to end up all alone like Adonijah. This has happened to some of the most famous people in all of history. Ask Adolf Hitler, who tried to rule the entire world, but died in a suicide. Or ask Howard Hughes, who at one time was the richest man on earth, but died alone and afraid, a recluse self-imprisoned in his own home. Better yet, ask yourself, how well has life worked when we've tried to live it on our own terms with ourselves as kings or queens and everybody else as our servants? Has it been everything that you've hoped for or has it royally failed to live up to your expectations? It just doesn't work. I know. Regrettably I have tried it several times myself. So what will happen when you hear that last blast of God's judgment at the final trump? Will it bring the good news of your salvation or will it be the sound of your doom? So I pray that that's you today like the prodigal son, you will look down and realize that you are standing ankle deep in pig slop and it's starting to look pretty appetizing to eat. Because you are so hungry. So don't delay. There is a heavenly father ready and willing to run and meet you. So here, everyone scurries or slinks back home to be the ideal citizens in Solomon's new kingdom. Every man now attempts to save himself. Suddenly Adonijah sits alone, the kingdom snatched from his grasp. Afraid for his own life. Now, the loser of his power struggle takes desperate measures. Verse 50, please. Adonijah also was afraid of Solomon. He got up and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Now, it was reported to Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For behold, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, May King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with a sword. And Solomon said, If he is a worthy man, and not one of his hairs will fall to the ground. But if wickedness is found in him, he will die. So King Solomon sent men, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and prostrated himself before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Why did Adonijah grab the horns of the altar? The altar in the tabernacle had horns on its corner that was used to tie down the animal sacrifices that were to be placed upon the altar. And so when a man was afraid or in trouble, he would run to the tabernacle and lay hold of the horns on the altar to plead for mercy. This is what people in danger did before the establishment of the six cities of refuge found in Exodus. A place of asylum at least delayed judgment and gave the accused an opportunity for a hearing. However, according to the law of Moses, doing this would save the life of someone who had convicted, convicted involuntary manslaughter. But that's not what the case is here. So Adonijah had no legal reason to expect that would keep him safe. But it was probably the only thing he could think of. It was maybe the best way to beg for his life and possibly the only thing that could still save him. So here we see Adonijah pitifully clinging to the horns of the altar, which makes a striking contrast to the man who had exalted himself earlier and paraded himself through, through the Jerusalem streets proclaiming, I am the king. As in the case with Haman, what a difference a day can make. It is told Solomon where his brother is, and Solomon says, If he's a worthy man, not one of his hairs will fall to the ground, but if wickedness is found in him, he will die. At this point, Adonijah is brought before Solomon and just prostrates himself before his brother. And when Adonijah appeared before him, notice Solomon didn't rant, and Solomon didn't rave. But with the authority of the kingdom behind him, he simply said, While well, you will tell a naughty six year old Just go to your room. On the one hand, that was mercy. Adonijah need not die. Solomon was prepared to spare his life. In context, this must be seen as a gracious act. Solomon began his reign not by seeking vengeance, but in showing mercy. On the other hand, Solomon's promise of mercy was not unconditional. Adonijah must prove himself a worthy man. In other words, he must display the kind of integrity and valor and a supporter of Solomon's rightful rule. However, if wickedness was found in him, he was going to find no mercy from Solomon. These conditions were essentially political. Adonijah's safety depended on no more treachery as his grasp for the throne now must be understood. Now, not everything is peaches and creams at this point, but to date, Adonijah has made the proper response. That is all that has been required. So long as he continues in that submission, he has promised safety. Yet we know there can be such an outward thing and kind of an external submission that really stands miles apart from a glad internal one. There can be a formal submission given because of conditions or circumstances. Something like the 67 standing ovations that Ceausescu of Romania once received during a five-hour speech. Now in that case, no one would imagine that such tedium could call forth such genuine enthusiasm. So in our account this morning, all you can say is, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. The man who tried to elevate himself was brought low. The man who wanted to be king is now paying homage to his younger brother. The man who tried to give all the orders is now told to go to his room. From this point on, Adonijah would be on probation. Solomon let him go only on the condition of good behavior. Now Adonijah, from this point, has to prove himself to be a worthy man. But sadly, everything we know about Adonijah thus far makes it seem very unlikely that he will be able to meet Solomon's royal condition. In an act of outward submission, he has sworn allegiance to the Lord's anointed, but has he truly surrendered the sovereignty of his heart? So as we finish today... Solomon showed mercy to his brother and allowed him to return to his home in Jerusalem. This amounted basically to house arrest because Solomon's guards could keep Adonijah under constant surveillance. But Solomon warned his brother to be uh, how he behaved, for as an insurgent, Adonijah was definitely worthy of death. If he stepped out of line, he would be executed. Adonijah bowed before Solomon But we are going to see that neither his heart was submitted to the Lord or to his brother. So 1 Kings 1 ends with Adonijah struggling to make this choice. The royal failure of all his selfish plans has left him in a real predicament. On that morning, he was having his head sized for a crown. And now he's in danger of losing his head altogether. So how would he respond? Would he still insist on calling himself the king, or would he bow before the Lord's anointed? Adonijah would have been wise to listen to Psalm chapter 2, which describes how the kings of the earth put themselves on the throne and take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. This is exactly what Adonijah had done, of course. But the psalm ends with this advice. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. It almost sounds as if the psalmist is speaking directly to Adonijah. Oh, this is exactly what he needed to do if he wanted to save his life. He would need to serve the Lord with fear and embrace the kingship of his son. For now, we'll have to put ourselves in the story and consider our own relationship to God's anointed and His eternal King, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus is superior to Solomon, and we see a superiority here. As much as we may admire Solomon for giving Adonijah another chance, we should even more thank Jesus for giving us multiple chances. Solomon said that Adonijah would be spared if he proved himself worthy, which was certainly fair enough. But Jesus says he will accept us when we are unworthy, as we all are. Solomon said that if Adonai just sinned, he would die. But Jesus, seeing that we had sinned, climbed up on the altar of sacrifice and died in our place. Now there is a real king for you, a ruler who will offer his life for your salvation. Let us pray. Lord, you are the greater Solomon. Not only have you given us multiple chances, your word says that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still yet sinners, you died for us. So that means that when we were at our worst, you looked down the quarters of time and chose us to be your own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Draw us to yourself and fill us with your Holy Spirit. And make us more like our Lord. For it is the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.